thank for this day. We thank for the opportunity to come before you and look at your word. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at the introduction to this book of Daniel. And, and we, as we go through this, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the book of Daniel, which we're getting ready to start here today, is, is a very controversial book as far as its dating. Uh, it is believed by me and most biblical scholars to be, be somewhere around 550 B.C. to 600 B.C. on its writing. Uh, most people do not like that because it is so accurate in its history that they will try to write it up as close to 1 B.C. as possible. Uh, they know that it was included in the Maccabean literature. It was, Daniel was included in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Does everybody know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was written about two, uh, about 100, 200 years before Jesus. And then it's called Septuagint, which means 70. They took 70 Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars and they wrote the Septuagint. Oh, I see how well, we won't, have, we won't even try to spell it right at the moment. <laughs> Most of the New Testament, as a matter of fact, when you look at the, the Old Testament quotes in the, in the New Testament, they are mostly quoted from the Septuagint Bible. So there will be certain variants from the Hebrew translation and the Greek translation of the same verse. And that, uh, just let you all know that, because if you ever hear somebody say, well, that's not quoted correctly, well, it's from the Septuagint and not from... So this problem of translations has always been out there. Uh, the people would say, well, that's not what the Hebrew Bible says because they quoted the, the Septuagint and Greek at the time was the uh, lingua franca, the language of the people. So we have this big controversy and most people will go, well, there's no way that this could be, you know, because it could be 500 years before because he lived in the Babylonian Empire and it, and it describes Babylon, Assyria, or excuse me, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Greek Empire and the Roman, Roman Empire all the way till today. And they'll go, well, there's just no way he could have written it all. And they forget that God is the writer of the Bible. And because they don't want to accept that God is the writer of the Bible, they, they work real hard at trying to say it. there's no way it could be written as early as it purports, purports itself to be. The author is generally considered to be Daniel other than the chapter where it's very clearly Nebuchadnezzar talking. There's a whole bunch of people that will say that the first part is some collection of people writing it and the last half is the part that Daniel wrote. We're going to accept that Daniel wrote the whole, the whole of it. Uh, Daniel is the Old Testament book that is not written in Hebrew. For the most part it's written in Aramaic, which would have been the language that Daniel was fluent in. So it, this, if you hear people tell you that the Bible is written in two languages, and I'll even slip and say that, oftentimes it, there is a third language involved, and it's Aramaic. And it's possible that Jesus spoke Aramaic as well as, as Greek and Hebrew. We just want to throw these things out to you because it is kind of an interesting argument. You're going to hear people trying to say, well, there's just no way. You know, and, and, and that goes through. There's plenty of books that do that. Isaiah has, a, has this idea that two authors wrote, wrote the book of Isaiah because all of a sudden, about two-thirds of the way through the book of Isaiah, it switches and the whole, the whole mood and picture and the style changes to a different, different uh, way. Uh, they'll look at other books and say, well, there's no way they can be this predictive. It has to be written someplace in the future. We've faced that on many of the Psalms that we study on Sunday night. There's some that are just so prophetic that it's like, okay, these are, 
you know, almost like they have to be written in Jesus' day because they predict the destruction of the temple and the desecration of the temple. And yet, and while that is possible that they're older, it is also possible that God, knowing what was going to happen, gave them a very clear and correct picture. Jeremiah prophesied even before they go into captivity that they will be in captivity for 70 years. And then Isaiah comes along and says Cyrus will send them back home. And even tells them that Cyrus will be the ruler of the Median Empire. And when Isaiah is saying this, that's a little town in the middle of nowhere that's not even having an you know, impact in the world. And he names them as a world leader with, that is going to send Israel back and actually names the leader. And people look at that and say, well, there's just no way that that could have been written. You know, and there's all these things that go on. And we want to keep in remembrance always that God knows everything. And when he gives the writing and he's the one that inspires everything, it can be very accurate long before it ever happens. So, so we look at this. Uh, who is Daniel? Daniel is or was a prince in Israel uh, related to David. He goes to Babylon as a slave and he raises up as a leader in the king's courts through, through at least three if not four kings that we know of. Uh, maybe even five kings that we know of. Did you say a prince in Israel? He was a prince of Israel. He's, he's related to David. And Canada gives us a picture of Joseph going into slavery and coming up as, as a ruler and, and influencer of, of everything that goes on. And just as in Joseph's case, he's one of the very few people in the Bible where nothing negative is said about his character. Okay, and that's not said very often of anybody in the Bible. David, we see all kinds of flaws in David. We see all kinds of flaws in Abraham and Solomon and Rehoboam and all the other, you know, even our great leaders, Hezekiah and, and Josiah, you know, these great men of God, we see great flaws in them. But the two in the scriptures that we don't see these flaws are on Joseph and Daniel. Does that mean that they didn't make any mistakes? No. It just means that God used them as, as very strong pictures and types of Jesus and showing them without flaws. But we do know that Daniel is going to be morally pure enough that the, the enemies that he has in the Medo-Persian court analyze his life and can't find anything to make charges on him. So that's, he was a pretty moral individual because anybody... You know, because we think about that. If your political enemies in our day want to find something about you, there's very few people in the political world who can't f have charges found against them if somebody s spends enough time. And, and in Daniel's case, they could not find these things to charge him with. So Daniel is going to be quite a picture of Christ. And the theme of this book is that God rules the world and is in control. And we're going to see that through a whole bunch of pictures. The book of Daniel was not originally in the Jewish canon. It's not considered a book because they don't consider him really a prophet. It's, they can look at him more of a book of history. Even though the whole second half of the book of Daniel is all prophecy, and we look at it and say it's our companion piece to help us understand the book of Revelation and all of eschatology, uh, the Jews basically did not look at it in that, in that format. Uh, but it was in the Septuagint, which was 
the Hebrew, the Greek version of the Bible. It was found in the dead, portions of it were found in the Dead Sea Scroll, just as other uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, just as Isaiah and, and much of Jeremiah was, so that proved that those books were as old as they claimed to be. So we're trying to lay down some of this history for us. It's, it's been a controversial book, and I think it's controversial because of how much history it has. And the Jews do look at it as a history book because all it does is even though it, it talks about all the different kingdoms, even though it predates those kingdoms, it is talking about those kingdoms. So we just want to take a look at this. Uh, looking at our little timeline here, this book is, the book of Daniel says it starts in the third year of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is this one right here on the bottom green line, starting around 607, 609 is Jehoiakim, B.C. So in the third year, Nebuchadnezzar conquers the, and, and pulls away a lot of Jews from Jehoiakim. And then we go, he's the third from the last king, and then we got Jehoiakim, we've got uh, uh, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah as the last kings of Judah. And so, but we're starting out at Jehoiakim, and then if we look over around uh, Zerubbabel, you look up and you go on up, and you'll see where Cyrus starts, uh, where the broken lines are all at here. And this, you come down to about 550, 530, and that's Cyrus's rule over the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel's going to live through that whole period of time. Okay, he's going to live through three kings in in Babylon, and at least two, if not three kings, uh, 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 two kings in the Medo-Persian Empire. So he's going to have a long span of life. He's going to go as a young, young child, young adolescent, and he's going to stay for the rest of his life ruling as a leader in, in foreign countries. Uh, that, um, yeah. Amy's class the other day had how old was Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den? You know, I never really thought about that, really. He was about 80. He was in his 80s or, or very close to 90 when he was thrown into the lion's den. And most of the time you, you hear this story and pictures in the, in the Sunday school and you think, oh, this, yeah. this little boy was yeah, being thrown in. Yeah. yeah, everybody in my class thought he was. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he went into Babylon captivity, Babylonian captivity somewhere around 10 or 12. He was a young child, a very early young man at the, you know, very young teen at the most. He goes through 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So he's in his 80s before Cyrus and Darius even start. Yeah, it's early, young man. Yeah. And then he, then he lives until he's somewhere in his 90s helping Darius and, and Cyrus rule their kingdoms. So when Darius throws him in the lion's den, he is not a young man. He is very old at that time. So, but, you know, I thought that was quite interesting because I, in my mind, I knew all the math. I knew he was old, but I, I remember being shown as a teen, as a in Sunday school, this picture of, you know, this, so this 20 or 30 year old was sitting in with the lions. Now, Daniel's not on that list. We've got another reason I gave you that list. Uh, so, we just want to kind of get this idea. You know, Daniel serves for a long time and he never goes back to Israel as far as we know. Okay, there's no verse that tells us that he did or didn't, but as far as we know, he never left the Medo-Persian Empire. And we, we do understand, and it is believed, that Daniel is the one that took and he trained the Medo-Persians 
uh, wise men in the ways of the Bible. And that's why when Jesus was born, they had been looking for the king of the Jews to be coming. And they knew the test, the prophecies and everything because of Daniel's influence over the, the king-making priests that followed one God. Okay, so this is quite an interesting, and we're going to see a, a, this whole process. In Joseph's day, he took the Pharaoh and he convert, basically apparently converted him to the one true God. And we're going to see Daniel do the same thing in Nebuchadnezzar's world, bringing him from uh, the idea that he was the favorite of Nabu, the God that he worshipped, which was the son of um, Marduk, the God of wisdom for the Babylonians. So those are, those are what we're going to see as we get into this, is that he's, taking a, he's going to take him from an idol worshiper into a worshiper of the one true God through a lot of visions and, and probably talks. Uh, you know, the one thing that God tells us is that, you know, when we serve him, he puts us in front of leaders and different people. And it's amazing how we get influence and get to talk with people just because we stand for God. And sometimes for good, sometimes not for good. <laughs> And so but we want to look at this Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, the rest of the this breakdown of the story, uh, we start out with six vignettes from the life of Daniel and his, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, if you want to know them by their Hebrew names. <laughs> it's always amazed me that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah do not get known by their Hebrew names. They were always known from that point on as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names. Daniel is known by his Hebrew name, and very few people know that his name was changed to Belshazzar. You know, uh, but he is known by his Hebrew name, while his friends are known by their Babylonian names. And they play a lesser role in this whole story, other than that one vignette. And we're going to see the vignettes of, of abstinence winning over, over uh, indulgence, uh, battle between the, the magicians and God. Uh, we see the battle of the idol versus God. We see pride being judged. We, we see the keep holy things holy. And then how evil plots against good. Okay? And those are the vignettes that we see in the lives of these, these gentlemen. And then we go into the visions of the future, both near and far future, even to our future, in the book of Daniel. Okay? Most of Daniel's future events have been fulfilled, but not all of them. There's still things to be fulfilled into the future, and it's an amazing book when we get into it. And so we see all of that. Um, many times the, this book has been uh, criticized because they tell us just like they did with David. If you've been, ever studied the different complaints, you know, until about 40 or 50, uh, 1940, 1950 A.D., Nobody believed that David exists outside of the Bible because they had not found any archaeological evidence <laughs> that David existed. He was considered a mytholo mythological character along the lines of King Arthur. And uh, it's kind of interesting now that we're getting further in. Even King Arthur, we're finding that there was a real king, Roman leader, who united England and, and called himself Arthur. So we're even seeing even what we thought was totally mythology, mythology is becoming we're finding the roots of, but they said the same thing about David and Solomon, that there was no real David, there was no real Solomon. They said the same thing about, they said the same thing about Daniel. There was no real person named Daniel. They've said it about Joseph. The Bible has all these characters that, that don't exist, and they're finding, as time goes on, they find the archaeological records that say these people existed. 
And so we just, we're trying to bring this out because there's a lot of controversy and a lot of people will try to tell you this, but just, and this is where we say God is true, okay? God is true and man doesn't know everything until he finally starts to know something. And we see this over and over in the scriptures. Well, this place never existed. This battle never existed. This person never existed. And yet, over time, we find the records of, yes, they did. Here's the, here's the evidence. And so we find this uh, evidence of Daniel. And we're going to start looking at chapter 1 a little bit. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. All right, so we're looking at this. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice man. Uh, we look at his history. He considered himself to be the favorite, favorites of, of his god Nebah, and he was extremely cruel. He's credited with building the garden, hanging gardens, the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But he's also credited with destruction of the Jewish temple, and he did destroy it when he finally took them into into their full captivity. It is said that he was warned by every oracle out there not to, not to attack Israel. Uh, and yet he did anyway because he thought he was fairly special, but yet at the same time he was afraid of them. His cruelness proved, shows according to history, that he took the Jewish captives, stripped them, and mar force marched them all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon without stop the whole way. And this was his cruelty because he was afraid, and it says he was afraid that if they stopped and that even for a few minutes that they might start praying and repent and God might deliver them. Uh, so he forced marched them the whole way, and that's a long march. That's, you know, and uh, there had to have been some stops. There's just no way the human body could not have marched 14 days from Jerusalem to, to Babylon, even on a straight march. So... But he was a very cruel, vicious leader. And we read in other verses of the Bible that God judged him because of the way he treated the Jews when, he, when God used them to capture them. And we see that later on, you, you, know, you, have, you are being judged because of what you have done. And uh, we see that over and over. Even when he got them to, you know, he, when they got to Babylon, he tried to take the Jewish temple singers and he wanted them to sing at his feasts, sing their songs at his feasts. They refused. He killed hundreds of them. Or they, and they, many of them chewed off and cut their fingers so they couldn't play their instruments because they would not play for the, they would not, be, would not let themselves be forced to be play for the king and his wild feasts. How do we know these things? From history. Historical records. Wow. Josephus gives us a lot of it, so do the other ancient writers. Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy. We're just trying to lay the, the, future, the features on this because one of the great things is that God brings redemption to Nebuchadnezzar and calls him and he humbles himself before God when we get further into the book of Daniel, which is a great 
thing for us to look at. God can change anybody and redeem them. And this is why we, we kind of give these things on to us. You know, he, you know, Nebuchadnezzar killed thousands of Jews because apparently they were very good looking to the people and they, and they fell in love with them and he didn't want them bringing their religion to his people. This goes kind of, it's the reverse side of the, the doctrine of Balaam. And if we remember in Balaam in Numbers, in, he told, Balaam told Balak he couldn't curse the people because God wouldn't curse them. He goes, but here's what you can do to destroy them. You know, send in your women and, and get them to, to have adultery and fornication with these guys and bring them into your temples and they will judge, you know, God will judge them. We're seeing Nebuchadnezzar sees the same problem coming, potential problem. He's got all these good-looking Jewish people coming in and the people are kind of liking them and he's afraid that they'll bring the worship of Jehovah into his, his realm and he doesn't want that so he kills thousands of them just because. You know, this is not a nice guy. Okay, we're just setting the stage. You know, this is this is this is who he, who he is, and he's bringing the people into the valley of Shinar or the land of Shinar. Shinar has a terrible reputation in the scriptures. Okay, the first mention of Shinar is in Genesis 10:10, 10, 10, or Genesis 10, a little before 8, 8 through 10, and it talks about Nimrod. Yeah. Nimrod lives in the valley of Shinar and builds the, 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 the city of Babylon and starts building the Tower of Babel in Shinar. Shinar is generally the area of Ur of Chaldees that Abraham is called out of. All right? So I just want to, we're kind of laying the foundation for this. That area has never been a good area. Almost the opposite of Jerusalem and, and Israel where God says this is my land it's almost as if Satan has said this this Babylonian area this uh, valley of Shinar is my area and we see that evil and we see it all the way through the book of Revelation where Babylon rises back up and and we talked in Revelation how many people don't think it's literally Babylon but I really do believe that Babylon and that whole area will be the seat of Satan's rule Okay, because it is, goes all the way back to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. And the reason I brought this, this one out is to, to show you the great-grandson of Noah on the righteous line is Selah. Okay, he's, he's uh, two up from the, where we marked the flood. And just wanted to bring him out. Nimrod and Selah would have been somewhere contemporary, okay? I'm not saying exactly the same spot, but they would have been in that same general time slot of approximately 1,700 years after creation, using the biblical dates for, these, for the people. How long he lived, we have no idea, because Nimrod does not is that not in a line that we're told anything about ages? We're just told this person begat this person who begat this, and Nimrod is Cush's grandson, or Ham's grandson, Cush's child. And so we just wanted to bring this out. This Nimrod has set this up. Abraham comes along about 200, 250 years after, after Nimrod. And now we're at the book of Daniel, which is hundreds of years beyond that. But Shinar is still a place where wickedness reigns. 
and still to this day is a place where wickedness tends to reign. It's one of the center spots of the whole area is very heavily into the Islamic world and violence against God's people is still very prevalent and has always been prevalent in that area. So this is, again, it's almost as if Satan has chosen that area as his seat of power in opposition to God's seat of power in Jerusalem. And we see this over and over through the scriptures. And so we're just showing you where the setting of this is, where the battle is almost in, the, in Satan's throne room is what we're looking at. And Daniel is being thrown into the center of one of the most evil parts of existence. And we've talked about Nimrod and, he, how, his, and how, his, how he is the founder of almost all false religion. You can find the roots of false religion in Babylonian Empire's rule under Nimrod. And it runs even through Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar is considered in the lineage of Nimrod. Okay, and it's, that's what the claims of the history are, is that he is, you know, I don't remember how many greats they put in there, but he's a great-grandson of, one of the great-grandsons of Nimrod. And he's in that right place to be so. So we're just trying to set up our, our, our setting of this, of this. It's not... It's not a good place to be. He's, Daniel has been taken from Israel, the seat of God's power, and put into probably the worst place he could, could ever imagine being, in the center of, Nimrod, of Nimrod's old religions through Nebuchadnezzar. So we have a, a great place, the great history that we look to. Uh, they've carried away the vessels of the temple, uh, they've taken away many of the young, young princes. Nimrod carried away a lot of the wealthiest people of, of, Jew, of uh, Israel and forced marched them into his, his place. Nimrod also followed in a, a way of uh, treating conquered lands by taking and, and transposing people from one, one place to another. So he would take and he'd conquer a place and he'd take their people and scatter them all through his empire take people from these other places of the empire and put them in the place that was conquered. And he did this so that people would not rebel against him. Because if you're living next to a neighbor, you know, your, your neighbor's a German and a Frenchman and an Italian and a, and a Native American and yourself, you, kinda, you don't have a reason to defend your own land. Hitler didn't do that during World War II and he never could get France under control because they kept getting an underground against him because they were defending their own land. The Americans tried to do this with the Native American Indians. They took the West Coast Indians, marched them to the east, and took the East Coast Indians, marched them to the west so that they would not have their attachment to their land and make them less willing to fight and also to kill them off because when you take desert Indians and put them in the forest and swamps, they don't know how to live. And you take the swamp and, you know, so the Americans were doing the same thing that's been done for millennia to control their population. And uh, Assyria did it, did the same thing. Rome, to a degree, did it often, not always. But in 70 AD, when they finally got tired of the Jews, they did it. They took the Jews, they destroyed the temple, and moved them out of their land and scattered them all through the Roman Empire. So it's been done forever, and it's a way to stop battles. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of the founding founders of that. And he says, OK, we're going to take you out of the land, and you won't want to defend this other piece of land because it's not yours in the first place. And he scattered them around so you didn't have a lot of friendly faces and you had the language barriers to break out and, 
and he didn't have to worry about this. So this is where he's taken. He's taken the best people out of Israel. And in verse 4, it says, And the king spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, and that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom there was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. So he's going in there and said, okay, we're going to take certain of these royal family and teach them. Take the best of the royal family. Even in this day, there was the idea that the royals were somewhat special. There was something special about them. If nothing else, they understood court procedures. Even though different courts had different rules, there was still enough similarity in them. You, they knew kind of when to stand, when to open their mouth, when to shut their mouth, uh, how, to, how to behave in front of the people that were supposed to be superior and how to behave when you, you, know, when you were the one to be spoken to. So he's saying, take the best. And it's kind of interesting in what he's, what he's saying to, to look at. In children whom there were no blemish, no scars, no, no malformities, that were well-favored, good-looking. <laughs> he didn't want ugly people standing in front of him. It's kind of a, you know, what he's telling them. But it says, in skillful in wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science. You wanted smart people. It's almost like the sacrifice. You want no blemish on your... Yeah, he didn't want a blemish. Yeah. But he also didn't want dumb people being educated, which is, in and of itself, has a problem built into it. Because when, when you are looking for smart people, they already have some opinions that have to be taught. But we see it even in our world today the governments do not really want educated people to rule. They want educated people, as long as they think the way they are told to think, in ruling places. But most of the governments around the world are wanting to educate people just enough so that they can read instructions and follow instructions, but not be smart enough to make independent decisions. And if you've been around our education system in America, that's very true. They try to do everything they can to not have you think. And even our universities used to be places where you could come in and debate and, and discuss opposite opinions. And even, and now in the uni even at the university level, you're to parrot whatever you're told to, to speak and not have an independent thought. Or you get basically punished you know, through, through being set aside. Nebuchadnezzar was taking a very dangerous place here because he wanted the smartest. <laughs> okay? But he also wanted the young ones so that he could try to revamp their thinking. And one of the things our school system is trying to do is get pushed back earlier and earlier and earlier the age they start grabbing hold of the children. Uh, it was bad enough when it was six and seven years old, and then they started pushing it back to the five-year-olds and the, and the four-year-olds. And now you've got our government saying, well, we want to get these kids in when they're two years old. Okay, free, free preschool so the parents can get back to work. No, it's, it has nothing to do with the parents getting back to work. It's if they want to get hold of these kids before, especially Christian parents, teach them all about Christianity and teach them that there are right and wrong. The earlier they can get hold of the children, the better. And this has been spoken by every dictator that's ever come to power 
They want the kids at the earliest that age they like can Hitler. possibly happen. Well, Hitler, Mussolini, yeah. Stalin, all of them wanted the kids, you know, the earliest, you get your kids before your, the parents have a time to teach them their morals. And uh, here we're seeing Nebuchadnezzar trying to follow the same thing. He wants them a little older than, than infants, but he's saying, I want these kids before they're fully, fully trained so that we can teach them. And he wants the smart ones. And we look at, what are they, what's he want them to know? He wants them to be skillful in all wisdom. Be discerning, able to understand things. Uh, see, see the answers. He wants them to be cunning in knowledge or discerning, again, that whole idea of he wants them to understand what it is they read, what, they, what it is they're looking at, being able to advise. He's actually looking for good advisors. And then he says, and knowledgeable in, 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 in the science, understanding science. Now, we kind of think that science is new. The amazing thing about science is we just keep rediscovering the same things that had been discovered in the past over and over and over again. The Egyptians knew that the world was round and they knew how, how big the world was. The Greeks knew the world was round and they knew how big the world was through mathematics. The idea that the world was round was not new when Christopher Columbus sailed around the, around the world. Those who were educated knew that the world was round. It was not common knowledge to those that were educated that knew mathematics. Now the average person who had never gone around the world or seen a picture of the globe, uh, to them the world was flat and, and people wanted to keep them unknowledgeable and they kept them pressed down. But the educated people have known for millennia that the earth is round and the exact size of it because of, because of trigonometry and all the mathematics that gets involved with it. It's not new. Uh, the, the use of battery power and electricity has never been new. Okay, the Egyptians and mo mo a lot of uh, African nations had batteries and electricity. Indoor plumbing is not new. It goes all the way back to the Egyptians. I mean, all these things that we think of as our civilized world are not new. Now, they have been rediscovered over the years as they would come and fall and disappear and somebody would conquer these countries and destroy their libraries and all their knowledge. But it is not new. All the stuff that's out there and this is why we, we go back to Ecclesiastes. There's nothing there's new under, under the, the sun. sun. And there's never been anything new yeah. under the sun. I, I just say when I pray, it's new for me. <laughs> Oftentimes that we think we've discovered something new. Uh, you know, you read through the book of Job, and Job's a great example. Once God starts talking to, the, to Job, and he starts showing the, the water cycle, Rain falls, goes to the river, and goes back up into the heavens. And that was supposedly rediscovered by us in the 1600s. Or, you know, uh, it talks about the nitrogen cycle, how things die, get back into the ground, and get fed back in again. You know? And he talks about all these different cycles and, and things that we think are new science. And it was known in Job's day. And if it was known in Job's day, it was known long before Job's day and since Job's day. So Nebuchadnezzar was looking for people that knew the sciences. Most magicians and all these guys in, the, in Daniel's day were very much into the sciences. Okay? Most of what we called the sorcerers did it through sciences. They, they learned about gunpowder and flash papers and, and how to do these illusions that were scientific in nature. And a matter of fact, their greatest goal of alchemy, which was the, the sciences, was to try to make lead into gold. 
okay, and they wanted to do it through science because they knew it wasn't magic. They were just looking to be able to change the principles of lead into gold, which we know you can't do without doing some things that we can't do even today. <laughs> but their whole goal was to use science to make these changes. And they would use gunpowder for flashes. They would, you know, they had all these things, magnesium that would light up and, and cause a flame. You know, they knew how to do this kind of stuff. All the sciences. And I've got a magician friend, he just laughs when he reads these things and he goes, I can do that. I can do that. You know, and he goes, I can do anything that the Bible's, you know, magicians and stuff did. He goes, because of how much he studied magic. And so it's kind of an interesting world. They were looking for people who understood. He was looking for people who had knowledge. And Daniel and his friends are going to be ones that he chooses from this, from this group. And then the last thing he was looking at, somebody that they could learn, teach and learn the tongue of the Chaldees. He wanted them to be able to speak to him. And usually if you get somebody young enough, you can teach, you know, teach them multiple languages. And you know, sometimes it's not easy to do multiple languages. Uh, especially here in America, we, we're kind of spoiled. We don't need multiple languages in America very, very much. And most people in America speak only one language unless you live in the South, and then you kind of learn Spanish to a degree, you know, to some greater or lesser degree. Uh, if you live in certain parts of the country, you used to have to know French to, to get by. But for the most part, we Americans get stuck in English, and English is the only thing we know. But it, it is one of those things. In, in many countries in the world, if you don't speak multiple languages, you're in trouble, because you're not going to be able to communicate with everybody else, because you have so many places. You think about it even in Jesus' day. Israel, they had to speak, they probably spoke Hebrew for, for church. They had to speak Aramaic, which was the local language outside that everybody in that area used. And then, because they were being run by the Romans, you might know some Latin, but the Romans had, were using Greek as the common language for the world. So you would know at least three languages if you did anything. As a, as a, in Jesus' day, and possibly four or more languages. And we want to think that they weren't very well educated. They didn't, they didn't know much. We are the ones that don't know much, pretty much, because of what we're looking at trying to accomplish. But here, the king is looking, he says, I want to get these Hebrew, Hebrew boys, and I want to get them taught to speak in the court. So that's what he's looking for. Verse 5, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, and at the end thereof that they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave the names for, he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael Shadrach, and to Azariah Abednego. So they give them... Uh, Babylonian or Chaldean names. And Hananiah, you know, was quite a name. He says, God has favored was his name in Hebrew. And he becomes Shadrach, which means great scribe. <laughs> um, Mishael means who is what God is. And he's given the name Meshach, which is guest of a king. <laughs> Azariah means scholar, uh, uh, Jehovah has helped. And he's given the name of Bendigo, servant of Nebo. And then Daniel, which means God is judge, is given the name Belshazzar, which is Prince of Bel. 
and he's never known by the by the name of that foreign god. The rest of them didn't have too bad of names, other than other than maybe Abednego, who is servant of Nebo, which is a which is a god. But uh, you know, to be called great scribe or guest of the king isn't too bad. <laughs> but they were given names to take away from their Jewishness. And the purpose of these names were to, to say, we're going to call you by our names, we're going to take away your names from you and change who you are. But you notice how they're going to be fed. And they're going to be trained for three years. And they're going to be fed from the king's table. Basically, whatever the king didn't eat from his feast was given to these guys the next day. And that means that the king was eating the best food and just as in the days of the Roman and Greek Empire, the best food came from the temples because the best food was sacrificed to their gods and then was sold to the public. What, what little parts weren't burnt were sold to the public. And if you remember, when we talked in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we talked about how even for the Jews, very little of the offering is burnt in most cases. All right, they would offer a side of beef and they would put on the shoulder and the innard, innard parts and the fat and burn them and the rest of it was given to the priest on many of the offerings. This was done even in this day and all through history these, these offerings were not completely burnt generally. Uh, just bits and pieces of them were and the rest were because the priest couldn't eat all the meat that was sought, offered and sacrificed. They would have a butcher shop at the bottom of the hill wherever the temple was and they'd sell the meat offered to the gods and create and turn the meat into money and be able to generate the money for the priests and in most cases the best meat was the one that came from there because you you know you every god had to have the best of your best of your flock you didn't you didn't take the blind uh, limping lamb to the to the offering because you would have been punished for doing that under any of the gods not just Je not just our god jehovah but any of the gods out there, quote unquote, <laughs> you know, their priest didn't want the junk that you were the your, your least favorite uh, of your flock. They wanted the best, and they would tell you that their god demanded the best, which makes sense. If you're going to worship a god, your god should be getting the best. And this is why when we go and we worship something other than God, we really give that whatever we're worshiping our best, the best of our time, the best. You know, you get people who are so much into sports and, the, and you get to the, your Super Bowl or the World Series and they have their parties with all their people as they celebrate, to, you know, celebrate the conclusion of the season for their God and they're not serving rotten, rotten hot dogs and, and spoiled, spoiled vegetable tray. They're, they're, they're putting good food. And sometimes, you know, you look, you know, I listen to some of these people and they're spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a Super Bowl party. And you're going, okay, and you're going to tell me that's the Super Bowl and then the football's not your, not your God. And, you know, and we see this over and over again. There's people who really worship television. You know, their, their whole house is centered around that television, and everything happens around that television. And their schedule is wrapped up around television. When's their favorite show on? And can't miss my favorite show. And if I've got to do something else, it's going to be recorded so I can... Watch it another time. We may not have the idols of wood and stone like they have in here, but we still have all the same idols, same gods. When we look at the god Moloch, the god of power and success, how many men especially 
put everything they have on the line for their business and the success of their business. The gods of entertainment, the god of pleasure, uh, uh, all the all the uh, the sex gods out there. There's people who are still following the god of sex, even though it's not a pole that they're worshiping in front of. They're doing everything that was expected, and we see here. Nebuchadnezzar is giving the people, he's, he's, they're, they're in a favored position, you know, they're getting the best food there is. But Daniel and his, and his friends are looking at it as two problems. Number one, it's offered to idols, which they're having problems with, and the Jews have always had a problem with that. Even the, the Jews that become Christians in, in, in uh, Paul's day have trouble with eating food that's been offered to an idol, even if it is something they were allowed to eat normally. But you've also got the fact that much of it is going to be things they're not allowed to eat. There's going to be the pig that's sitting there on this table that, that is on there, uh, and, uh, and all kinds of shellfish and all kinds of thing, organ meats and stuff that they're not allowed to eat. And Daniel and, and his friends are looking at it and saying, we can't eat this food. And so they've got a problem. And their problem is when they tell them that I can't eat this food, it may mean their life because they're going to reject it. And so we look at verse uh, eight. eight. The word but. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Thereof he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and compassion with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your meat and your drink. For why should, I see, why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your age? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the, to the king. Okay, so here he is. He's going to say, hey, I don't want to eat this food. I, you know, just, I, can't, I can't defile myself. And... I love this message back from the eunuch. He says, hey, I have no problem with that, Daniel, but, uh, you know, you're being fed by the king. And the king's going to want to know two things. If, you're, if you don't look as healthy as the rest of them, you know, why? And indirectly he's saying, and what did I do with the rest of the food? Okay, because the king's giving him the best of the food, and he's going to say, okay, you didn't give it to them. Who got this food? And so there's a reason for this man to be kind of afraid. Number one, you know, they're not going to be as well fed. And then the question of how have you been a good steward of what I've given you? And this is something that all servants are supposed to be concerned with. Are they a good servant for what the king entrusts them? And that should be even for us. We are children of God, the children of the king. He gives us things to be stewards of. And expects us to use them properly. And this is very important for us to keep in mind, to use what God gives us as good stewards. Here the prince of the eunuch is basically saying, hey, if you look bad, I could lose my head. And even if you look bad, then the king says, why? And I tell him that you weren't eating this food. Then he's going to really wonder, what did you do with the food? <laughs> because the eunuch can't eat the food that was supposed to go to them because then he'd be called the bad steward. So there's a two-part problem in here. You're, gonna look, you're not going to look as healthy as the rest of the people, and I'll be held accountable for what happened to the king's money for all practical purposes. And so 
you know, and it's kind of, I just like the way, you know, I, you'll endanger me of my head. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I always think about uh, Alice in Wonderland's, you know, the Queen of Hearts, off with his head. Yeah. But you know, that wasn't an uncommon thing. If you uh, did something that angered the royalty, the king or the queen, you may not lose your head necessarily, but you would definitely lose your life. In Rome, they, Nero used those, his enemies to put them on uh, crucifixes, you know, and then on those ways at night, they'd light them on fire after they were dead. You know, it wasn't bad enough just to be dead. They'd light your body on fire and use it as a street lamp uh, on, on the road. So this is not new. It is not uncommon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was cruel to his people. And we see this guy saying, you know, hey, if I disobey and you don't look as healthy as the rest of those guys, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my life. And this is something we've got to remember. This was a serious request that Daniel is, being at, is number one, asking. He's going, I'm not eating this food no matter what. I'd like your permission not to eat it. But, and he's going, uh, we got a problem here, Daniel. Because I personally don't care whether you eat it or not, but we have a problem if you don't look as healthy as the rest of them. And we see Daniel's great faith here in verse 11, then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove your servants, I beseech you, ten days, and let, us, let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before you, and the countenance of the children that eat the portions of the king's meat, and as you see, deal with your servants. So he consented them, to them in this matter and proved them for ten days. So Daniel's going, I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll do a test. <laughs> you know, for 10 days, you know, let us eat pulse or vegetables, primarily legumes, peas and beans and water. So this is kind of a, a one a interesting test. You know, in 10 days, they might not look as good, but you know, he's got another three years to get the, you know, most of the three years left to make, the, make sure they get fed the right stuff and, and look good. So it's a relatively good test for him. He can, he can save face by getting them up to where they're supposed to be if, if they don't look good. And if they look good, then he's no worse off either because now he, doesn't, now he can do whatever he wants with this food and doesn't really tell us what he ever plans to do with the food. But uh, he's not going to make them eat it for 10 days. And this goes to show you Daniel's faith in God. God, we're not going to defile you. We're going to be standing in abstinence. We're going to stay away from the food offered to the idols, and we just want a very simple diet. And you picture this, he doesn't want to deal with any meat. Do you, can you picture why he doesn't want any meat in his diet at this point? Any meat in his diet probably went to the idols. Okay, They're pushing back against any food that's gone to the idols, and the beans are something that usually did not get offered. <laughs> To the idols, okay. Uh, the fruits and vegetables might have been might have been put on the meat offerings. You know the, and meat is not just meat; it's food food offerings that go before the idols. Very rarely would they put a pot of beans in front of the idol, okay. Or or here's your dirty beans out of the middle of the ground. So I mean, his his plan is very strong, to keep away from anything that's probably gone before that idol. No wine, no, none of the drinks. Give us water. 
and these beans that aren't going to be offered in front of the idol. Okay, very restricted diet, much more restricted than God has ever told the Jewish people to be restricted to. Now, there are groups that talk about vegetarian, and they'll point to this. Well, see, here's the perfect diet, Daniel's diet, you know, water and beans. <laughs> well, that's fine, but that's not, you're not going to make a case that that's what God said to eat. Even in the Garden of Eden, he said you can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And so they had any fruit, any vegetable that was grown was allowed to them. And then in Genesis 9, he allowed man to eat meat. Okay, before that, those who will claim that meat was not originally intended for man, that is true. But the animals were never originally intended to eat animals either. It wasn't until after the flood and God took the terror of man off the beasts that he said that man could eat meat. Okay, so we were created as vegetarians and probably were vegetarians until after the flood. Now, is it possible that some people who were, who were uh, not following God uh, ate meat you know, before the flood? It is absolutely possible that people before, before God gave permission, you know, when they were doing what was right in their own eyes, ate meat. But God did not give permission for meat until after the flood. And Daniel's here, he's pushing himself so far beyond anything that God has ever spoken. And I truly believe, and this is my belief, that he did it just so there was no chance of him getting anything that had been offered to the idol. Give us the water, which isn't going to go in front of the idol, and give us the beans, which nobody wants to put in front of the idol. And I think this is why he chose this, and God honors his request. There's nothing in this verse that or scientifically that would say beans and water are your best diet and will make you healthy. Matter of fact, if you try to eat on beans and diets, in the most case, you will not have a healthy diet. You know, it's not the worst diet you can possibly think of. And for me, it would be terrible because when I make beans, it's got to have a big ham bone or, or ham hock or something. I got to have my meat in my beans. So, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be able to just eat the beans, but God honored this request to be able to say I'm going to abstain from all chances of this food being given to the idols and God honors this request of his and it in verse 15 and at the end of 10 days their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat and Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse so he says, okay, you look healthy. Okay, for the next, you know, next, next three years, we're going to give you just what you asked because you look healthier. And again, this is a diet that is probably not going to make you fatter. You know, you know, if you just ate beans, you might be healthy. You might be, you'd have your protein. You'd have your, you know, your vitamins and everything, but you're not necessarily going to look fatter than the people eating the cake and the cookies and the sweetbreads and all the other meats and everything out there. So this was a miracle from God when you think about it. This was not just because of the food they ate. This is a miracle that God produced and saying, you're honoring me, Here's, here is the blessing that you're going to get because you're honoring me. How many times when we choose to honor God and we do things that make no sense whatsoever and God honors it? We think of tithing. You know, it makes no sense to give God 10% of your money and, and expect to have a better life 
than trying to live on the 100%. And yet, when we do tithe, God blesses the 90%, and we pay our bills. And instead of having more month left than the money at the end of the month, we oftentimes have at least enough, if not more money left over at the end of the month. It's been true of the years that I've been tithing. It's been the, true of most of the people that I talk to. When they tithe, God blesses them every single time. And in Malachi, it's the only place where God says, try me and see if I don't deliver. The only place we're told to test God is in, will I depend on him to be my everything? And when we honor God on that way, he blesses. And I love it. It's been said many times, and it's a principle in the Bible, you can't outgive God. And I've seen people who give much more than the tithe, and they still have their bills paid and their blessings handled. People like J.C. Penney, uh, uh, Sears, uh, the founder of Caterpillar, which I can never remember his name, but they honored God to the point where they said, God, if you could live on, if you only want 10, I'll, we'll, I'll live on the 10 and you get the 90. These were millionaires and they were giving God 90% of what they got. Can you figure how much they had if they, they're millionaires and they gave away 90% of what they had? They were being blessed because, and they were proving out that you can't outgive God. Does that mean I encourage everybody to go out and give 90% to God? No, <laughs> only if God tells you to do it. But I have been increasing the percentage of my offerings for years, and I am well above 10%. I don't tell people how much above 10%, but I'm well above 10% of my, of my income, and God is always blessed. Even when I didn't have the job, and, we, and, I, and I could have said, okay, God, I don't have the money, I'm going to cut back to 10%. No, I kept a percentage that I was giving God, and God blessed, and he, paid, he made sure all the bills were paid. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, God, we're going to trust you. Makes no sense to eat, eat nothing and, and look better, but we're going to do this, and we're going to expect you to honor that, and God does. How much faith do we have in God? How easy is it for us to say, God, I just don't trust you on this at this moment? So many people will say, God, I'll give you whatever's left over at the end of the month. And in their mind, they're, they're, they're honest, and God, if I have 40% left over at the end of the month, you can have it. But God does not want leftovers. <laughs> this is the one place where God says, try. And it is very true. God does not need our money. He owns everything already. But his purpose is, where is our trust? Is our trust in him? Or is our trust in money? Most people will say their trust is in God, but they live as if their trust is in money. This is why... It has been said over and over again, if you really want to see who somebody's God is, look at their checkbook. Where are they spending the majority of their money? And you will see what's important to them. God says, test. Daniel and his friends tested God, saying, God, we don't want to eat this food. Yes, yes, it would make us look healthier probably, but God, we're going to depend on you. We're going to abstain from any appearance of evil. We're not going to eat this food that's going to the idols and we're going to trust you, God, that you're going to bless us. And just as we see later on when they, when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand and he says, who's going to deliver you? And they're going, our God can deliver us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will stand with our God. I love that answer that they have and we need to develop that answer. 
my God is able to do anything and everything. He can deliver me from anything. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, I'm still going to believe that he's doing what's best for me and that he is going to be glorified by whatever it is that I'm asked to do. And that means sometimes we'll give our lives and sacrifice for him. Sometimes we'll walk through hard times because we are following him and he doesn't make it look like we're being blessed. We end up being blessed if we go far enough down the road, but he doesn't promise us. Stephen, when he stood before the Sanhedrin and he proclaimed Jesus Christ's message because it was stoned. Peter and Paul, slightly before that, you know, at times, were just imprisoned <laughs> and beat. Well, just like that, I forget what verse in the Bible it says, um, man, uh, man, can, man cannot do it alone, but God, no man, I know I forget, I just had it in my brain. But anyway, it says God can do anything. Yeah. Man cannot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That. I can do all things through yeah. Christ who strengthens me, yeah. or with God all things are possible, or what can separate us from the love of God. There's all these verses that teach us all of that information. Let's take the last little, little couple of verses, if we don't mind. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he would bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So God is the one that gave them all their knowledge, and, their, and he made them stand out. And we've now, in one chapter gone three years. Okay, and I like to point these things out. When we have little time markers, I like to point them out. He was being fed for three years, and it says now at the end of that time, which is three years. So in the space of 17 verses, we've covered three years. And the king communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. And Daniel continued even until the first year of King Cyrus. This gives you the point that this is going to be some 80 years later before, before this Daniel's going to pass away. And that's from the time that he was, was in there. So we want to look. God blessed them and he made them stand out as special. Whenever the king answer, asked them questions, they had answers. They stood out, and it says ten times, you know, which just means a lot better. Their answers were just, you know, whatever the other guys said, their answers were like, okay, they said this, but here's the whole, the whole story. And the king got to where he loved having them around, and it says they stood before the king. And that's kind of an interesting place. It, it, it is more than just that they were before the king, but to stand in the presence of the king was a respect position. Okay, because most people, when they went before the king, had to fall on their faces. Very few people could ever, in any time in, this, in the world, stand before the king. They all had to bow, and the lower you bowed, the better. And in most cases, you were to get on the floor and grovel before the kings, but his advisors had that ability to be able to stand before him and say, you know, we're going to contradict you. We're going to give you other points of view. And, a good and kings have known that they need good advisors if they were smart. You know, all leaders know that they need good advisors. 
A lot of people think that, these, that leaders want yes men around them, but a true leader does not want somebody who always says yes to them. They want somebody who says, hey, you're being dumb. You know, uh, you need to think about this. And maybe not quite that blunt, but they want people who are saying that's not a good move. Because you don't want to make mistakes that could have been avoided. And the last thing you want to do is hear your advisor, well, I could have told you that wasn't going to work. And then you're going to say, well, why didn't you? Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. But there are people out there that are, that are pretty dumb. They just want to be told yes all the time. And those are the ones that their kingdoms, their, their businesses, whatever it is, usually fall apart because nobody's brave enough to tell them, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> and you know, we see that sometimes in good, good leaders and presidents, sometimes they put some very good people around them that will say no to them, make them think. Doesn't mean they're going to always listen to them, but at least they've been told, no, that wasn't a good idea. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you and to, to look at your word. Lord, we thank you for Daniel's and his and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's desire to serve and to honor you. And we just thank you and ask you to go with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.